Hello and welcome to Living with Lupus. My name is Paulina and I am a lupus nephritis warrior. My hope for this podcast is that it can become an enlightening space shared amongst individuals who hope to gain not only knowledge about lupus, but also find peace in knowing they aren't alone and possibly join a community with other lupus warriors. Thank you for joining. Now let's get started. So before we get started into my actual lupus story and why I started this podcast, I wanted to go over some things about who I am. First and foremost, my birthday is in March. So I'm a Pisces, Pi Day specifically. Um, But more importantly, I am a dog mom. For those of you who say it's not the same, I mean, it isn't. It isn't the same as a human child. However, the things that I have to do for Rico are pretty damn similar to a baby in its infant years. Um... I do have Rico with me, so if you hear him in the background whining, now you know. Um, We're currently recording near the beach, some type of zen area. However, there are a lot of dogs walking by, so he tends to get a little overly excited and wants to just hop out of the car to go see them. Um, Anyways, moving forward, I am a lupus nephritis warrior. I have been fighting this battle since I was 12 years old. Um, I'm currently 25, so it's been about 12, 13 years that I have been dealing with this. Um, My Lupus attacked my kidneys so much so that I am now in stage five renal failure. Um, So not only am I a lupus warrior, but I am also a kidney warrior um, and now a transplant candidate. Um, I am looking for a live donor to be willing to donate their kidney to me. Um, which is a whole other story in itself. Um, I do want to go into the transplant process and what that looks like in another episode. Um, but for now, continuing a little bit more about me, um, I am a graduate from DePaul University in Chicago. I got my undergrad in psychology with the concentration in community psych and, uh, Um, focus in trauma. I also graduated from Loyola Marymount in Westchester, California um, with my degree in urban education. I taught at Bird Middle School or LAUSD for about two years um, before I realized I wanted to do something else. Um, which is more become a counselor for the youth instead of a teacher for the youth. Um, 
I am the oldest sibling out of five. So that I have three brothers and a sister. So out of all of us, there's two girls and three boys, right? I've traveled multiple places um, in the States, but also out of country. I most and foremost, however, I am dedicated to working with and supporting the youth of today. Um, there goes Rico, agreeing, hopefully, um, but really supporting them in any way I can, whether that's through education, through play, through counseling, through health. I mean, opportunities to support the youth are endless. And I really feel personally that a lot of our attention should go there um, because of how impactful they are for our future. But that's enough about me. Now, let's get into, right, Rico, why I started this podcast. So the main reason why I started this podcast was because of recent events that occurred in my life. Um, like I said earlier, I am now in stage five renal failure um, and on dialysis. I don't think I actually mentioned dialysis, but I am currently on dialysis and on the transplant list. Um, so because of this change, this all happened in January 2023 of my renal disease taking over um, to the point of me needing dialysis, right? I've always had um, kidney failure or some type of kidney issues because of my lupus. Um, but my lupus became so overly active this past December, January, um, to the point of me now needing dialysis to take care of my kidneys. Um, so this change caused me to not only have to quit my job um, for health reasons, um, but also spend a lot of time at home or at dialysis clinics or at doctor's appointments. Um, so as you can imagine, with this change, I started to feel uh, very alone. Not to say that I didn't have any support because let me, let me be clear the support was endless. I mean, from not only family, but friends I haven't even spoken to since elementary school, um, kindergarten even, uh, you know, close friends that I've known for ages, and even colleagues reaching out that I haven't, haven't spoken to. Um, so the support was there. Uh, it was more just me feeling lonely in the sense of no one really could understand what I was going through, right? My experience was very unique to me um, to where every time I would try to express myself, most people were very quick to say, stay positive, you know, stay strong. And there were moments where it was just like, you don't even know what's going on for you to, for you to tell me that, right? I felt very, very lonely. Um, since then, I've joined a lot of support groups, counseling, but I felt like talking through my experience and sharing my thoughts, feelings, and insights on my lupus 
might not only be helpful for me during this situation, but also could possibly be helpful for others who are out there fighting this same battle or a battle similar to mine, right? Other lupus warriors, other kidney disease warriors, other specifically lupus nephritis warriors, right? Those of you who have diagnosed, were diagnosed at a very young age could possibly relate to me more than those of you who were diagnosed at a later age in life. But that doesn't exclude your experience from this podcast. Um, All of our experiences are very unique, but in some way we're all connected as well Um, with this disease, right? Um, So that's pretty much the main reason why I decided to start this podcast, hoping to reach others going through the same thing or others wanting to learn more about lupus, about kidney disease, uh, who may just need someone to reach out to and talk to about this. Um, I hope to be that person to help you. I hope to be the person I needed when I was diagnosed or even now during the situation, um, who I need to support me. Now, jumping into the nitty gritty of this initial first episode, um, being my lupus story, right? Quote unquote, or quotes around story, because I don't know what other words to use besides story or experience or life changing event uh, to describe this situation, really. Uh, I'm going to break it down into four parts, my middle school years, high school years, college years, and then me having to move back home. For those of you who don't know, lupus in general is an autoimmune disease. So that just means that my own body's immune system is, which the immune system is supposed to protect me, right? It's supposed to protect me from anything foreign coming inside of my body. So when you have lupus, your body's immune system is actually attacking its own cells or organs inside your body. So I'm kind of like my own worst enemy, right? There's those quotes or there's that saying, don't be your own worst enemy. Like sometimes it's it's in reference to your mental health and You know, you're your own worst enemy because of how you think about yourself. Um, But lupus is actually that physical manifestation where you are physically attacking yourself. And the more stressed you are is when you tend to attack yourself even more. So that is kind of like a little snippet of what lupus is. Um, but getting into my story and when I was diagnosed, it actually took place for me, uh, like I said earlier, when I was 12 years old, um, more specifically, the summer is going from seventh to eighth grade. So I left seventh grade, uh, and then during like midsummer, actually, no, I think it was even the beginning of summer. I started my period. It was the hormonal change for me because lupus is triggered by something 
hormonal and or stressful. Um, so for me, it was hormonal first and then stress came later. But I started my period and then it like months or weeks even later, I started to experience not only the butterfly rash or the malar rash um, across my face from left left cheek to right cheek. Um, I also had sores in my mouth, extreme joint pain to the point where I was physically looking like a T-Rex with my arms because of me not being able to lift my arms above my head, right? I couldn't, I couldn't do it because of the joint pain, um, but also fatigue. Now at 12 years old, I had no idea what any of these things were or um, you know, sores in my mouth were a little bit concerning. Uh, joint pain now at the time, you know, it's summer vacation. I'm one trying to learn how to cartwheel. So I had been doing more uh, workouts, so to speak, to try to perfect the cartwheel. So my, my arms were already killing me. But I also had been swimming nonstop from really day to night. And with all of that activity, I just attributed one, the malar rash from being too, too much time in the sun, but also the joint pain from, you know, the recent activities that I had been doing at the time. So I didn't bring anything up. I mean, obviously, my parents saw the malar rash and were like, oh, my God, like you're spending way too much time in the sun. You need to ease it up or put on a lot more sunscreen. Um, but actually my mom had been diagnosed with lupus in the previous years and with her own diagnosis and her own experience, she was able to notice that, you know, this wasn't just a rash from the sun. It looked more like the malar rash. Or these weren't just, you know, pains from learning how to do a cartwheel. It, you know, is more localized in my joints versus my muscle. Um, so she started kind of putting two and two together and, um, you know, took me to the closest, the closest um, emergency room to me at the time where we were staying um, was UCLA Santa Monica. So she took me there and obviously because of my age, they did not consider lupus. Um, you know, they ran tests. I had, they ran urine tests and I don't, can't remember if they ran any blood tests, but I know for sure they ran a urine test because they had said like, oh, nothing major was going on with me. I just had a UTI. Um, now my mom was like, hell no. That's not the only thing going on. So instead of really picking and wasting her energy on, you know, UCLA Santa Monica, she allowed for the discharge with, you know, me being, me being let out under the impression that I had a UTI and she drove me or her and my grandma actually drove me to um, Children's Hospital Los Angeles. And there is where they were like, oh, my God, you have all of the markers for lupus. You know, obviously, they're not considering age 
really because it's a children's hospital. So now they can really just look at the whole disease versus, you know, the symptoms and the age and all separated. They were able to just look at the fact that I had all of the markers along with the blood, you know, just even taking a simple blood test um, worked out there. But that is where I was in terms of my middle school experience. So, right, this is just from seventh to eighth grade. I came back eighth grade fully diagnosed with lupus nephritis. Um, I had fought it all summer and even missed my first couple of weeks of eighth grade because I was still in the hospital. You know, during the summer, I was on heavy doses of prednisone, heavy, heavy medication. Um, They were already telling me how bad my kidneys were uh, at the time. But my mom, you know, they had, since I was so young and I was a minor, but just really, really young, most of the conversations were being taken place or were taken place with my parents. So I didn't really understand what was going on with my health. Uh, more specifically what lupus was or what lupus nephritis was. Like I knew my body was attacking my body, but the extent of it, not really. Um, so by eighth grade now, you know, I'm on full medication. My face looks so different. I went from being very skinny to being very plump because of the steroids. Um, so there was a bit of Um, body dysmorphia within myself, just not understanding or even looking at myself the same anymore. Um, My friends were great. They really helped me through it. I mean, considering eighth grade, I mean, middle schoolers can be big jerks. So I was bullied in, in middle school just because of the way I looked, right? I was bigger. So a lot of people just assumed that I was eating a lot, um, which I could care less about because, man, I was alive. Like, they didn't know anything that had happened during that summer. Um, But my homegirls were, you know, so dope. Um, Almost felt like I didn't even have lupus because of how, how supportive they were. I mean, considering our age, their support was rock solid. Um. So yeah, now I'm fully diagnosed eighth grade going into high school. My high school experience was a bit different um, from my middle school experience. All of my, you know, support groups, so to speak, my friend groups split up. We weren't together anymore. I only had one ride or die, Faith, shout out her. Um, at the beginning anyways, right? At the beginning that she was my rock solid uh, friend that I still had who knew everything that was going on or knew somewhat what was going on, right? Because I still really didn't fully include everyone in to my lupus experience. I really kept that to myself. Even the friends that I created later on in high school didn't really know what my lupus was. I mean, they knew I had lupus, my closest friends, um, knew I had lupus, but didn't really know the extent of what I did to even stay fighting, right? Stay alive or, 
to be even able to go to school. Uh, during high school, I was still on heavy doses of prednisone, definitely in the double digits area, maybe 20, 30 um, milligrams of prednisone. Um, I was also on an infusion of cytoxin at the time. And for those of you who don't know, um, cytoxin is an alkylating agent. And that just means that it's supposed to, this infusion is supposed to slow or stop the growth of any malignant cells or cells that are rapidly dividing in your body. Um, so like I'm, like I had said earlier, my lupus was very active. Um, although it was diagnosed and they were able to give me medicines, the medicines were not stopping the aggressive attack on my kidneys. So the pill versions weren't doing anything. Um, I mean, doing a little bit, but not enough, right? They had still wanted to put me on dialysis, but my mom was like, hell no. If you put her on, she's probably not going to come back and yada, yada. So they went with this aggressive treatment of cytoxin and cellcept. It's a, a duo treatment, um, but it's supposed to counter really, really aggressive lupus. And at the time, my lupus was very aggressive. Um, looking back, I had no idea it was this aggressive. I mean, I knew that my lupus was attacking, but didn't know the extent of it because it was still not really being discussed with me. It was being discussed with my parents and then very brushly discussed in terms of like, this is what we're going to do now. Like, you're going to be on this medication and this is what you're taking. Uh, it didn't give me any time to really question my care or question the doctors in terms of what was going on. It was just one of those parents already agreed. So hopefully you do too. Um, and honestly, I was very much in denial. Like looking back, I really didn't question anyone just because I wanted it to be over. I did not I did not want to have lupus, right? I knew no one else in my grade or in my age was having to deal with something like this. I, not that they didn't have their own, you know, situations that they were dealing with that were probably just as stressful to them as this situation was to me. But lupus is a pain in the ass. Uh, it truly, truly is. I try to ignore my fatigue by just really heavy focus on school and work. Um, I started working in high school, Baskin Robbins, Old Navy, just doing what I could to not think about the fact that I was sick. I was heavily drinking, um, heavily partying, you know, smoking but still working just as hard in my grades. I was A's and B's all throughout, 3.5, 3.9 GPA. Like, I didn't let my school slip. Um, I didn't not take care of myself. I was taking my medicines um, when I needed to, but also was very reckless at the same time. Um, not that I 
would consider myself like suicidal or anything in the sense of not wanting to be alive or hating myself or hating, you know, I hated the disease, but most of it was just trying to numb the disease or numb the thoughts of me being sick. Um, so the drugs that I was on are, were considered, you know, chemotherapy drugs. So the side effects of, you know, not having an appetite, nausea, um, weight, weight loss and weight gain, it, it depends, but also hair loss, uh, were all hitting me. I was losing a lot of my hair to the point where it looked like I had a mullet. Like now I'm so blessed that thick hair runs in the family. So, um, although I was losing hair left and right, my hair was very thick. So when I lost hair, it actually just looked like it was thinning out. So I still had hair on my head. No one noticed that I was losing hair because of how much hair I had. A blessing in disguise, to be honest. Um, but I noticed the fact that um, like it was thinning, right? It was super thick at the top and then super thin at the, uh, at the ends. So the roots were really thick, but the ends were very thin. So it looked very mullet-like, hated it. And that, that was my hairstyle from freshman year all the way to pretty much junior year, having to deal with that. Um, leaving school or being absent every now and then because the chemo was just very hard and it would cause me to be super nauseous or super weak the following day. I would have to miss a full day of school to do this infusion. And then the next day, depending on who I was with, my parents were separate or are separated. Um, so if I was with my mom, she was very much understanding in the sense of if you need to take a day off, take a day off. My dad was understanding just in a different way. He approached the situation uh, very much. Don't don't allow this illness to get the best of you. Don't let it bring you down. Um, with that being said, he really did not let me miss school. Um, there was only one time that I remember be, like putting my foot down and being like, no, I'm not going. Like You could tell me to get up. You can tell me to get dressed. But unless you're dressing me and unless you're physically putting me in the class, I'm not doing it. Like I cannot do it today. And he was like, okay, fine. Like You could stay. Um, call me if you need me you know, I mean, we didn't have anyone to watch me. We didn't have a caregiver or anyone to do that. So I still had to like get up. I mean, he made me breakfast, but I still had to get up and lunch and, you know, do things for me. But that was the one time that he allowed me to stay home um, or kind of allowed me to be sick. I don't even know how to explain that, but um. Yeah, so high school was tough in terms of me wanting to ignore and numb the fact that I had lupus, uh, but also I was on some serious heavy medications um, to counter the lupus. Now looking back, I know that, but at the time I did not realize how aggressive the treatment was because I didn't realize how aggressive my lupus was.
I feel like now if I would have known how aggressive it was, it one would have really fucked with me mentally. But um, two, I highly doubt I would have been partying as often as I was because of how serious I would have known it was. Um, so high school moving to college, though, after my senior year, everything kind of started mellowing out in terms of my lupus. Uh, that being said, it was more just, I didn't need to be on the chemo anymore. I didn't need to be on Celsept. So that, that aggressive treatment duo, I didn't need to do it anymore. Um, but I was still on prednisone. I was still on azathioprine. Uh, for my kidneys, and I was still on Plaquenil. Um, so still on some medications moving into college. My doctors were not happy with the fact that I was going out of state, but they couldn't stop me. You know, I was turning seven, I was turning 18. So I was going from pediatric rheumatology to adult rheumatology, right? And there was really nothing they could do to stop me from moving. And with that being said, they sent me just a list of rheumatologists in Chicago, because that's where I went, DePaul University, um, and kind of transferred my care to from Children's Hospital Los Angeles to Rush University. Uh, and from there, well, college is college. I mean, I, I feel like we all have the understanding of what happens in college stays in college. However, in terms of my lupus, I will share some, some details. Luckily for me, by college, my lupus had mellowed out. Like I was saying, I was on very small medications, um, still on medicine, but not in remission. I still needed to be on top of my doctor's visits um, and my medication. So I was constantly doing that, constantly checking up, going to my doctors, adjusting medicines if possible. Um, that was four years, right? Four years of that. Well, I'll say three years because uh, by my fourth year is where I started getting frustrated. I started feeling like Am I ever not going to have to take medicines? Um, I feel like a lot of it was because I started doing my own research. I started noticing like there are lupus patients out there who aren't always on medicines and were able to do not even do things, but go from taking meds to not taking meds. So why was it that my medicines were never being adjusted? Like there was just a lot of frustration, a lot of am I getting the right care? Um, like I know my, I know my lupus mellowed out, but am I ever going to not have to take meds? Like, can that be the end goal? And my rheumatologist at the time, Dr. Sakira, um, did not think that no meds were going to be possible for me. And that really frustrated me because I started doing research on pharmaceutical companies and how they're just hungry for money. And there's a lot of doctors who tend to um, kind of like put people or put patients on medications 
uh, because they also get a cut of the money, right? There's just some BS around the medical system and the pharmaceutical system. Not that I'm saying Dr. Sakira was like that, but my research had me feeling like that, had me thinking like that, had me questioning my care. Um, And it didn't help that Dr. Sakira was older, right? An older doctor. And I'm like, is this guy even noticing that I'm young and I could be off these meds? Like, I don't need to be on them and yada, yada, yada. Uh, Then my senior year of college, I started like I was taking my meds. And for some reason, I was throwing them up for like pretty much the whole year. I was constantly throwing up day and night, no matter what I would eat. Um, I was just throwing up. I didn't know what was going on. I went to, um, you know, gastroenterologists, GI doctors, and I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but um, GI doctors and kind of trying to figure out what the heck was going on. Why wasn't it that I couldn't eat? I lost so much weight, probably like 25 to 30 pounds. Uh, It was the skinniest I've ever been, but a lot of it was, actually all of it was from not eating, um, which was so horrible. I wanted to eat so bad. Like I would cook myself an amazing meal, like just really good because the, the food or the medicines that I was on, I had to eat, right? Prednisone would upset my stomach. Plaquenil would upset my stomach. I mean, although they say you can take it on an empty stomach, I don't believe that um, because it always hurt my stomach. Azathioprine hurt my stomach. So like iron medications or iron pills because I was severely anemic were hurting my stomach. Like all the medicines that I would take actually had a huge effect on my nausea and my ability to eat. So I would try to eat first. And then to have something in my system. And then I would try to take my meds or take, you know, however, I would switch it up, take my meds first, eat then, eat all my food and then take my meds, eat half my food and then take my meds. No matter what the regimen of eating and taking my meds was, I was throwing up. I was constantly throwing up. Um, For a while, it just turned into me juicing. And I was like, you know what? If I'm going to throw up, I might as well have it be liquid because I'm over it. I would juice all these vegetables and have like a very small breakfast. Um, And I just went from there and just kind of stopped taking my medicines because I was like, look, if you guys can't figure out what it is, like the medicines are making me throw up. I know they are. Um. And so, you know, I went to see a hematologist about my iron because I was like, I can't take iron pills anymore. Like, they're really making me nauseous. So when they started putting me on uh, iron transfusions, blood transfusions, um, or actually chest iron transfusions, blood transfusions every now and then, um, but more regular doses of iron transfusions. I was I was trying to take my prednisone. I was taking it like every other day to give me some time to eat. Um, and I was just continuing on that regimen. 
my doctors were trying to figure out what it was that was making me very upset. I did multiple tests or stomach tests, you know, like endoscopy, colonoscopy. I did this one test. I can't remember what it was, but it was to monitor. I can't remember the name of it, but the reasoning behind it was to monitor how slow um, or fast my um, my intestines were pushing food out. So they had me eat and then lay under an x-ray that was taking pictures every, you know, every, we'll just say five minutes, I'm not sure, but a time segment um, to see how fast my food was moving throughout my system. And everything was normal, no matter what test they took, they couldn't find anything. So, you know, the, the year went by of just me struggling with that. I had a flare with my lupus every time it was finals. Um, but I didn't, I wasn't having, um, you know, a crazy attack on my kidneys. It was more just my stomach was really messed up and I couldn't figure out what it was. But when I moved back home, everything like went away. All of the pain, the fact that I couldn't eat, uh, it like within a week or two weeks, you know, home cooking damn near fixed the job, right? That's at least that's what I was saying. I don't know what it was to this day. Doctors don't know why, like I was struggling so bad. Um, my sister has her own theories and kind of opened my eyes to the possibility of me being depressed during that time. And it could have been more mental than physical, but I was so used to physical complications that I never even considered mental um, complications. Um, because I'm telling you, the second I got home, it was like everything was fixed. But also mentally, I was in a whole different state. My senior year, like, looking back, she's, she's most likely correct that I was depressed during my senior year. And I had just never experienced depression or any kind of mental difficulties. Um, so I would have, you know, never even noticed it. I wasn't seeing a therapist or a counselor or anyone who could tell me like, hey, this might be something mental rather than physical. Um, so it wasn't anything I considered. But looking back, I was very sad all the time. I mean, I got Rico because of the fact of how sad I was. I was very alone. I, I felt very alone. Um, so my doctor, Emily, is probably correct. Um, my sister, anyway, she's probably correct in the fact that I was depressed. And when I moved back home, like the depression kind of was swept under the rug. And I, it was fixed for a moment, so to speak, you know, quotations around the word fixed, but definitely swept under the rug. I was able to eat again. You know, unfortunately, I got COVID because the, the time I graduated and moved back was because of COVID. I didn't have my graduation um, for DePaul. I had it virtually. And when I moved back, we were already in lockdown. Like I celebrated 
my birthday or my birthday is on the 14th of March and we went into lockdown on the 13th. So, you know, I moved back from Chicago on St. Patrick's Day. So literally only three days later was when I kind of came back. Um, So college, although it was completely mellowed out in terms of how aggressive my lupus was, there was some different difficulties that I was experiencing that I didn't even realize um, how they could affect me later on. Um, But once I moved back, I went two years without my meds. So that was a pretty wild experience. And now let me get into what it was like and where I'm at now um, after graduating from DePaul. So I graduated, I moved back from Chicago to LA, and I was living at home with my mom, my brother, Nathan, and my sister, Emily, um, for about a year. Within my time after graduation, I I decided within myself that I was going to stop my meds. Not that I stopped going to my doctor's or anything like that. But as I was mentioning, I was experiencing these, you know, stomach problems. I was already super frustrated with the fact that my doctor didn't have an end goal of me ever stopping my steroids. Um, And with no reason of why I wasn't stopping. I'm sure he had his reasons, but he wasn't explaining to me why. When I moved back, I was put with another rheumatologist within UCLA, another nephrologist within UCLA, another hematologist within UCLA, just all my care was within UCLA. I was constantly seeing them, you know, every six months, every three months, whatever they told me. Um, I didn't let them know the first year that I was off my meds, just because doctors are very quick to hate that idea right? They, not to say, follow my advice and, you know, go off your meds without doctor's advice because, um, I do regret going off my meds to be completely honest. I enjoyed it not having to worry about my medicine or, oh my God, I have to eat because this is going to hurt my stomach or, um, I did enjoy it. It felt like I was normal for a minute. I mean, looking back, it was my happiest year of my life. You know, after being diagnosed, that was my happiest year. Um, I got into my first relationship. I was just really figuring out who I was, both like spiritually and just internally. Um, I was happy. I got to say it. Um, I was going to my doctors and they were saying like, you know, everything is checking out. You are healthy, quote unquote, around healthy because I mean, I still had lupus. My lupus wasn't in remission. They still saw signs of my lupus, but um, nothing to have to increase my medicine or nothing of worry. Right. In my eyes, if me being off my meds was super bad, they would have seen it right away. They would have noticed it and been like, oh, my God, we got to go from, you know, this amount to this amount because clearly it's not working. I mean, look at your blood levels. But none of that was happening. If anything, they were like, everything is looking good. 
everything is checking out. See you back in three months. See you back in six months, whatever. And I just kept going about my time. Um, it wasn't until about December 2022 that I was like, holy shit, I'm very depressed again. I didn't like where I was in my life. I, you know, my relationship had ended months prior, like it wasn't even around that time, but I had gotten some news about my ex that kind of triggered me into a downfall, um, questioning a lot of stuff in our relationship that um, I wasn't even thinking of before, but it had me overly stuck in my thoughts and just constantly crying. I was crying all the time. And that depression, that sadness, not sure which one, so, but that sadness that I was feeling really was stressing me out. Um, I put on a lot of weight. I was in very irregular moods, very snappy at my grandma, at, at my aunt, at my cousin, like I was living with them at the time. I was just very snappy with them. Um, I lost my appetite. A lot of it had to do with the fact that I was gaining weight. And I was just like, yo, like, what do I do? Like, I'm going to switch my diet and I'm going to try to, you know, do this instead. And um, then it, it was, this is all December. I ended up leaving my grandma's house and going to my mom's house, trying to find like some support. Like, I just couldn't stop crying. I had a lot of emotions of my childhood come up that I had never dealt with and just me questioning my health like am I healthy am I dying like what the hell's going on um it wasn't until one night that I was with my grandparents and we were checking our blood pressures like what these old timers do you know on their on their on their free time I don't know we started checking our blood pressure and, you know, my grandpa had a really good blood pressure. It was like 120 over 80, you know, solid. My grandma had a solid blood pressure around the same numbers. Um, then we checked mine and my shit was like 160 over 120. And everyone was like, whoa, what the hell is going on? And um, I was like, okay, like, who the hell is messing with the BP machine? Um, because there's no way this is my blood pressure. Like, I don't feel this way. I don't feel like I have high BP. I, you know, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel, but I'm definitely not feeling shitty. Um, but looking back, I was feeling so shitty. Like I was just ignoring it. Like I'm really good at doing that. I now having to create the script for this podcast um, and like kind of storylining my experience with lupus, I'm really noticing how much I just ignored, um, how much I refused to acknowledge during my upbringing, um, just me wanting to not have it and not have lupus and such a, such a bad way to go about it. Um, but the fact that I can see it now is very, very changing within myself. Um, because it's something I would never do again. Like I am physically creating a podcast about my experience. And this is something I would have never done 
or even wanted to talk about when I was in middle school or high school or college. Like none of my friends in college, I think only two people, and they were in the medical route, right? Like I told them I had lupus. But everyone else, nope, they didn't know. They knew I was partying. They knew I was having a good time. Like they didn't know anything. Middle school, my select two or three, right? High school, my select two or three. It was very much personalized. Like I wasn't letting everyone in. Um, And I wish I would have joined some support groups. My mom and my dad tried to get me in support groups when I was younger, start me in therapy sessions when I was younger. Um, But for the support groups, I was like, you know, screw these kids. They don't know what I'm going through. And honestly, they did. They did know what I was going through. Like that would have helped me so much, but I was so stubborn. Um, Again, trying to ignore what I was going through and sitting in those groups made me have to sit with what the hell I was going through. And I didn't want that. I wasn't ready for that. Um, So anyone out there who is like feeling that, like I'm not ready to accept this new reality for myself, accept it. Hit with it now versus later. Sit with the emotion of, discomfort right sit with it be with it um accept your truth because honestly at the end of the day you're gonna have to be with that like no one else is gonna help you through it in a way that you want um because no one else is sitting in your shoes right no one else is knowing what you're going through I mean they know about it but they don't know what it feels like they don't know that experience you know your your experience is very unique And at the end of the day, you have to walk yourself through it. Um, You will have support or you won't have support. But at the end of the day, you are your biggest enemy, right? That comes back. Um, So fight against it. Fight fight yourself and be be there with yourself. Um, Sit with the fact that you are also your biggest warrior, right? You can get yourself through the craziest shit but it has to be you. You have to be the one to take it day by day and to sit with that day by day. Um, And so anyways, when I moved back home, I noticed that I had this high BP. I also was very short of breath. um, And I had a crazy amount of pain in my chest. Like it wasn't consistent. It was every now and then, like I would take a deep breath and I couldn't breathe. Like I had to like... (laughs) to lower it, lower my breath. Um, There were nights that when I was sleeping with Rico, that I would wake up like that because, or I would wake up in the middle of the night from Rico kicking me from my left side to my right side. Like he would go underneath my back. Like if he was trying to dig under me and push me up, um, but I think to this day that he kind of saved my life from me not being able to breathe in my sleep because I would wake up like, <gasps> like if I was getting a big gasp of breath, but also because he was kicking me awake. Um, you, I would, I don't know what would have happened if he didn't kick me awake type of thing. So anyways, that was all December that I'm feeling these changes. Like I'm extremely emotional, uh, overweight, high BP, shortness of breath, pain in chest, moods all over the place, um, loss of appetite. Um, but nothing in considered 
to my lupus, right? And that I noticed. When I was diagnosed, I had all the lupus markers. I had the malar rash. I had sores in my mouth. I had joint pain, fatigue. I mean, I did have fatigue, but I was like, man, I'm working. I just started USC to get my master's in counseling. Um, so I was like, of course, I'm tired. It's not fatigue, though. It's not lupus. January came by, you know, I'm, I'm still going to work. It's probably like second week of January, January 18th, actually, to be exact. I went into the ER because I couldn't take it anymore. The shortness of breath was really what was getting me. I'm like, there's no way that I can't walk up two, two or three steps of stairs, like to get into my grandma's house. That's what was getting me. I tried to take a shower that day before work and turning on the water, like bending over to turn the faucet on for the water had me out of breath. And I was like, oh, hell no. Something is up. Like, I know I'm gaining some weight, but there's no way in hell that I gained this much weight to where I can't turn on the damn faucet in the shower. I called my mom or she was actually already on her way uh, to my grandma's house to pick me up so we could get like some lunch. But I was like, you know, scratch lunch. I need to go to the ER ASAP. Did not want to go in because my experience with the medical system has always been if I go into the ER, well, I'm going to be in there for at least a week. Um, it is something that always happens every time I go into the ER. I'm always struggling with getting out. Uh, they always find something. So I had that in my mind already. I, you know, I'm a big believer in manifesting and I probably manifested my month stay in the hospital. Um, I was in there for since or till what day was it? Till Valentine's Day. So January 18th to Valentine's Day. So about a month, you know, a little less than a month, like four days less than a month. But that's because by then I was like, get me the hell out of here. My BP wasn't going down. My BP was higher. Okay. Um, so even the doctors were like, look, the longer we keep you in here, the more it's going to mess with your BP, the more we're affecting your mental health. Like at this point, you kind of have to leave. We're not sure if the medicines we put you on are going to work, but we're going to hope that they are. And if you feel any worse, come back in. So they discharged me with not even having everything figured out. Um, but I was on some medication. So when I went into the ER in January, and this segment is going to be a long one, but when I went into the ER in January, um, the first thing first thing that they noticed was the fact that I had a pericardial effusion. Um, so for those of you who aren't sure what that is, and hopefully for those of you who do know what it is, I'm explaining it correctly. If not, call me out, message me, tell me. From what I understand, it's um, when you have fluid around the heart. There's a buildup of fluid around the heart. So all of the pressure of the buildup fluid is actually making it hard for the heart to expand and pump enough blood to whatever organs or whatever parts of the bodies that need it, right? So my shortness of breath, my pain in the chest was all being caused by this pericardial effusion, the fluid surrounding my heart. Um, so first things first, they're like, oh my God, you have damn near half a liter of fluid around your heart. Um, we need to get you into the ICU to drain this fluid. It's going to be a quick, easy procedure, nothing to worry about. 
But let me tell you, that pain after the draining, um, I even tried to do the procedure without the pain medicine because they wanted to get me fentanyl. And, you know, I've seen euphoria, you know, I have, unfortunately, um, a lot of cousins, uncles who are addicts, um, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, like I do have addicts in the family. So it runs within my genes. I was not comfortable taking um, opioids at all during my hospital stay. Um, so I refused the fentanyl during the pericardial fusion procedure. Um, and the second, like, you know, they still did some numbing cream. They still did some stuff. But the second I got out, I was trying to breathe again. And they were like, you should be able to take a deep breath, you know, in time. But I tried to take a deep breath and I was like, oh, I can't, like, I can't do it. I can't, like, oh my God, the pain is so crazy. Like the pain was ridiculous. So they gave me the fentanyl um, and I passed out. I was out for what felt like two days. Um, now, before I get into my crazy ER experience at UCLA Santa Monica, because let me tell you, that shit isn't running right. That hospital is not running right. Um, Dr. Bailey or Dr. David Bailey, uh, who's the CEO or chief of nurse, he needs to do his job and correct the nursing staff in there, the procedural staff, you know, the, the people who do surgeries up in there, like they need to be corrected. They need to be reprimanded. Um, because if I had such a wild experience, which I'll probably go into sometime in my podcast, then I know damn well there are other people out there who have had a horrible experience with UCLA and have just had not had the means to come out and say anything about it um, or vocalize it. Um, so anyways, I had my first procedure there in ICU. I was in there for about a couple of days. And then probably about the third day, I want to say, maybe fourth day, a nephrologist came in, Dr. Sakar. She comes into the ICU and she's just like, you know, why aren't you taking care of yourself? And kind of just putting all blame on me. So since I was on pain meds, I was very groggy. I didn't know what was going on, but I can hear her talking her crap, which I felt like I was being attacked. And I couldn't defend myself because I was on these opioids. Um, so I, I called the nurse in and I was like, stop giving me opioids, start giving me Tylenol because I need to tell this Dr. Sakar what the hell is up. Like, there's no way she's coming in here putting blame on me. Like, I became very defensive, very quick to be like, back up and do your homework because there's, not, like, I am not this type of patient that doesn't take care of herself. She ended up disclosing to me that the reason she felt like I was not a, um, a compliant patient was because of the nephrologist that I had in outpatient care. Dr. Sidhu had put in his notes and months prior that in all my appointments that I was visiting, that I was a non-compliant patient 
because I did end up telling my doctors that I wasn't taking my meds. Um, and the second I told them, they were like completely sketched out. And, and all of a sudden they were mentioning that, um, you know, my markers were going up, not to an alar alarming amount, but they were definitely higher than what they were. Um, and in my eyes, I was just like, if you had already seen this trend of it going up, why weren't you saying anything? Like, where was that information being told? Like, because I was on medicine or you thought I was on medicine, you thought it wasn't enough to mention. Like, it just wasn't making sense. So instead of him saying anything and even mentioning the fact that actually my kidneys were at 80% failure in April of 2022, he wrote in the notes that I was non-compliant and I refused to take medicine. I refused to follow his advice and pretty much putting all blame on me when not really, you know, yeah, I didn't take my meds, but it wasn't that I was non-compliant. I mean, I still came to my appointments. I still followed advice. If there was anything out of, you know, the ordinary, like taking a biopsy, I would go to the biopsies or I was still doing everything. So the fact that he put in that note that I was non-compliant really fucked with me. Um, because that wasn't the case. So the following day, I ended up telling this, you know, nephrologist in the ICU, I am a compliant patient. I have always taken my meds. I've had lupus since I was 12 years old. I've had thyroid problems from before then and was always on top of my meds. Like, don't sit here and follow the rumors of this one doctor who's listing me as non-compliant when that was just not the freaking case. Um, it completely changed our relationship and she kind of was just like, okay, well, unfortunately you have to be put on dialysis. Um, so they, I had two surgeries in terms of my kidney failure. Um, one was to put a temporary catheter in my neck, like an emergency catheter in my neck to start dialysis. And another was to remove the neck catheter and put one in my chest which for me I was under the impression that a chest permacath catheter was permanent and not because of the name but because of how it was disclosed to me and um, you know the reason we're taking the one out of the neck and putting it in the chest is because it's more permanent more secure um, less chances of it being yanked out all right well let's do it um, to find out now that I have to choose a different modality of dialysis because the one that I have is not liable for after a couple of months. That's a whole different story. Um, so I had those surgeries. You know, I was told that I had fluid buildup around my heart because of the fact, or I had fluid buildup around my heart. I had kidney failure. All of this was because of my lupus. Um, to find out that the underlining cause of all my problems was actually, in fact, my lupus. The thing that I thought was not the cause to begin with. So imagine my surprise when they were like, yeah, your lupus is actually in a crazy flare. We can't even recognize, we can't even see your thyroid numbers. Um, it's going so bad that now you need to be on dialysis. We need to protect the heart. 
And after the, after the surgery to switch from the neck to the chest catheter, um, I was bleeding nonstop. My blood platelets weren't, or my blood platelet levels were so low that I wasn't able to clot and stop the bleeding at my own port site. Um, there was one night in the hospital that, uh, the bleeding was happening from like 1 a.m. to about 8 a.m. and nothing was being done. Doctors were called, nurses were called, dialysis teams were called, uh, everyone was called, but nothing was being done. I was just constantly bleeding. And I think I feel like the stress of that situation of me feeling like I was going to die, like seriously believing that I was not going to see my parents anymore. And, and that was the night that I had told my mom, like, you could go home, like sleep at home, telling my dad, like, please, I'll see you in the morning for breakfast. Like, yada, yada, yada. I'm going to be able to handle the surgery. Don't even trip. That night of constant fear, hour after hour from the bleeding, I think um, the stress from that gave my lupus just the right momentum it needed to go from attacking my heart, from attacking my kidneys, to now attacking my blood. Um, so this is now end of January, beginning February dates, where my lupus went, well, where, where the talk went from I'm possibly getting discharged to, oh, definitely not getting discharged because your blood is being destroyed quicker than it's being reproduced. Um, at this point, I'm telling the doctors, you're fucking killing me. Like, it's not me at this point. It's you guys. Whatever you're doing to me, you made me worse. I only came in here for you to drain or help me breathe. And now you're telling me I need to be on dialysis. You're you know, like, I was so upset. Um, I mean, to this day, I could start crying about it. Um, I am in therapy, just throwing that out there. But it is an emotional trigger the frustration that I was feeling at that time. Um, no one, no one could convince, no one could convince me otherwise that these doctors were not trying to kill me. Um, you know, no matter how much my dad tried to knock some sense into me or my mom tried to listen, I had the pastor coming to speak to me. And to be honest, he was probably the one person that not even try to make like fix or modify my believing or my thoughts he was just listening and being like look you're in a shitty situation but instead of trying to rush through the situation take it day by day take it one day at a time don't try to take it you know months in advance or trying to plan for the future because you don't know what's going to happen and shit i really didn't because i went into this hospital visit with you know, high BP as the main concern. And I was leaving with, oh, well, now your lupus attacks your blood. Like, you really don't know what the hell could happen in a day, let alone a month. Right. So he was right. He was the only one that helped me through that. And more in the sense of just take it day by day. So what they ended up giving me and what I'm still on now is high doses of prednisone still. I'm on 40 milligrams of prednisone with it titrating down. Hopefully soon enough, I will be off prednisone. 
Um, I'm on my Fortic, which is a different form of Cellcept. It's like cousins to Cellcept. Um, the main difference is it has a coating for the stomach because they do know that I have stomach issues. Um, and Rituxin. So when I was in high school, I was on Cytoxin, which is that chemotherapy drug. And now in my adulthood, 25 years old, I had to be put on Rituxin, which isn't chemotherapy, but it's definitely not FDA approved. Um, did not know that when I signed up for it. Um, but they did say it was an intense drug that could or could not work. It had a 50-50 chance of actually helping me. Now, the reason it's not FDA approved is because it attacks B cells. And B cells are the cells in your body that produce antibodies. Um, and for lupus patients, we need those antibodies, right? Our body is already attacking itself. So when you start attacking and destroying B cells or the antibodies or the cells that produce the antibodies, you're kind of depleting um, the line of defense that we have already, right? We already don't have a strong line of defense, you know, of your body attacking your body. So now kind of making that line thinner is why it's not FDA approved. So the hematologist came in and was like, look, we're going to try this. But we don't know if it's going to work. And if it doesn't work, we don't know what we're going to do to help you. Um, we're not sure if you're even going to survive this. Uh, and not in those words, but that's what was said. Um, it was more just, we don't want to jump to conclusions, but we're going to take it day by day. And, um, oh man, that shit hit. That reality of possibly not living was very scary. I did not even know how to process it, to be honest. Um, like really being told like, you might, you might not make it in this situation, uh, but stay positive because if you're stressed, your lupus is going to attack itself right? And how do you stay positive with that news? How do you stay positive or strong when you're told that these medications might not even help you? Um, so I guess what I did in that moment was I reached out and I've never reached out before. I used social media in a positive way, because as most of you know, social media is toxic as hell. Um, but it was like 3 a.m. I woke up, I was by myself in the hospital room, and I just, I, I pleaded for prayers. Um, I'm not a religious person, but I definitely am super spiritual. So I believe in prayer. I believe in positive manifestation. I believe in sending positive vibes and you know, Maloho, all of you out there who know what that is, I believe in that shit. Like, don't wish bad on me. Help me, you know, and I, I like, oh, it could make me cry from, from just even going back to the moment of, I'm, I don't know what else to do. You know, I'm, I'm here. I am getting help 
from the doctors, like trusting these motherfuckers. And I don't even know if I trust them, you know, like in all reality. So the last thing I could do for myself was pray, was really to pray. Oh, my God. And um, I prayed. I I prayed heavy and I reached out for people to pray for me heavy. And sure enough, the next day, the next couple of weeks, they were like, yo, like we're starting to notice something like we're actually going to discharge you because at this point, it's just the waiting game. And we don't know if it's going to work until about four weeks. So instead of you staying here and waiting, you might as well stay at home and wait. And I was like, oh, my God, like, seriously, thank God, you know, like, thank the universe. Thank the positive prayers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because now I could leave. Like, I was so, so happy um, that I could leave. And now here I am. Here I am now, um, making it day by day, taking it day by day. And just, you know, although I may be my worst enemy because of my lupus, I am also my biggest supporter. I am also my biggest warrior. Like, I am here for me. Um, So this podcast here is really meant for others going through just the same lupus bs because let's be real lupus is bs but you're not alone you are not the only one fighting this battle it is not done for you and i've heard so many stories of lupus patients out there that have given up and are just like what the hell like no matter what i do i can't be stress free and for those of you who know rheumatologists, the biggest thing they want to say is be stress-free, be stress-free. Like, you don't know how to be stress-free either, doc. So how are you going to tell me to be stress-free? Life is stressful, right? How can you be stress-free in a stressful life? Um, It's just impossible. But I'm starting to notice it's not about being stress-free. Oh, excuse me, (laughs) I just burped. It's not about being stress-free. It's about learning how to manage your stress. And really taking time for you, those of you who are parents with lupus, like huge shout out because kids are stressful. Like I have Rico, but he ain't nearly as stressful as a toddler, as a teenager, as a freaking adult, you know, someone going through their adolescence, early adulthood, like, oh, hell no. Hard pass, but I'm here to hear you. I'm here to sit with you. Like, I know that isn't easy. Um, just from knowing and being a kid myself, but also seeing my mom go through it. Um, let's see. Just lupus is BS. Now, before I get into a long tangent on the fact that lupus is BS, because boy, could I, and I'm sure all of you could agree. And trust me, I will have an episode on it because if I'm venting, I'm venting all the way. I'm not holding back. I want to end this podcast off, this episode one of my story of who I am, of what I'm doing here and why I'm doing it with a thank you. For those of you who are listening today, like who stayed all the way to the end, shout out to you. I truly appreciate it. Um, 
you have any requests or questions or stuff you want me to research or things you want me to ask other lupus warriors because I definitely know a lot of people who have lupus, um, let me know. There are different types, so I will get into the different types in the future. I will get into other people's experiences and have different interviews of them and their experiences, um, but send me those things. I am looking for a live donor for a kidney because I am on the list. Um, so if you do have any insights, if you do have any questions, anything you want me to add to this podcast, hit me up on Insta at a kidney for Paulina, all lowercase, and it's the number four, not the word four. So hit me up, show me some love, let me know that you're listening. And even if you're not, I love the sound of my own voice, so I'll be back. And honestly, this was a very therapeutic podcast, not just for me, but hopefully for you. Um, so till then, shout out all you lupus warriors. I'm out. This is Paulina, and this is what it's like for me living with lupus.